Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Welcome everyone to episode number 12 of the Strategy and Insider podcast. I'm Thomas and the host of this podcast and a partner with Strategy and we still record our sessions in a remote setting, but uh, well, today COVID-19 is really only one reason for this, and I'll tell you more in a bit. This podcast season um, is focusing around the most important topics, innovations, but also uh, the most common challenges of the future of healthcare. And I'm truly very pleased that so many of you take the time to listen to our conversations that we're having with the various experts coming from the, the hospitals, academia, big pharma, but also the startup scene in the public sector area and, and others. And with that being said, I do welcome you to today's session and episode. And as I already yeah, kind of sneak peeked in the beginning, our remote setting today is not only because of COVID-19, but also due to the fact that today's guest joins me from California while I'm speaking to you from my home near Frankfurt. And it's really a great pleasure to welcome one of uh, the most renowned physicians all across the U.S. talking about Dr. Sachin Chain. Um, he um, is the president and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan, which is one of the largest nonprofit health maintenance organizations in the U.S. providing healthcare coverage to Medicare beneficiaries. And since its founding back in the 77s, um, Scan's mission is to keep seniors healthy and independent, but providing service, but also support to them, as well as the related caregivers. And Sachin joined SCAN quite recently, beginning of July 2020, after leading health plan and delivery system Caremore as their president and CEO for several years. Prior to that, um, Sachin has actually been serving between 2011 and 14 as the Chief Medical Information and Innovation Officer at Merck. And before that, he was part of the Obama administration as a senior advisor. Not least, um, his academic record also reads truly impressive, uh, holding and graduating an MBA uh, BA in government um, from the Harvard College, earning his MD from the Harvard Medical School, but also holding an MBA from the Harvard Business School. And that uh, tie to academia um, is, is still relevant and vibrant uh, as he's uh, working also as an adjunct professor of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine. All in all, um, and I truly can go on and on uh, uh, with this laudatio, uh, I can say with confidence that we have a true and very prominent expert on the matter of healthcare on the line today. And I'm really very honored uh, that you agreed to be my guest for today's podcast. So thanks already, Sachin, for taking the time. Really thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, Thomas. Uh, big fan of Strategy End and, and uh, thrilled to be part of, part of your uh, podcast series. Superb. And um, yeah, I, I was alluding to it. Your CV <laughs> certainly is very impressive. And you are a qualified physician. You are a lecturer. You are a writer, a CEO, but also a government consultant. And uh, this is in itself impressive. If you would have to choose, what would be your choice, what you would do for the rest of your life, given that you have so many roles or had so many roles already? Well, it's an interesting question, Thomas, and um, you know, I frequently I'll answer it a little bit a different way. I sometimes think about 
what I would do if I were retraining um, in a different specialty of medicine. And mm-hmm. uh, the one uh, theme that I think exists across all the domains in which I work is um, really understanding people. And so I, I frequently think uh, or fantasize about, you know, retraining as a psychiatrist so I can better understand people, <laughs> human motivations, and, you know, how to drive, um, you know, from, as an executive, how to use human motivations to drive performance, um, but also understand, you know, kind of the diversity of human behavior that you see playing out across um, all these different domains. And so, um, you know, I do sometimes, sometimes think about um, an alternate life path. I'm, I'm actually quite pleased doing what I'm doing. I feel like I'm exactly where I'm meant to be a leading scan. I think it's an incredible uh, organization and we have a huge opportunity to make a difference in um, U.S. healthcare uh, by building new models that, you know, really inspire the industry around how to better care for seniors. Um, but um, I, I do sometimes think about that alternate pathway. As you are a physician also by train, do you miss practicing medicine? And what made you switch in the first place um, to leave medicine and rather go on to the administrative side or the the producer side? Yeah, it's a great question. I would, you know, one just kind of point of clarification, I have um, always seen patients. I actually um, uh, am in the process right now of um, getting recredentialed so I can see patients at the Los Angeles VA health system. Uh, when I was at Caremore, Uh, I maintained a, a, a clinical commitment within our um, uh, within our care more clinics. And then, you know, before that, when I was at Merck, I was also an attending position at the Boston VA. And so um, I actually think it's incredibly important if you're trained as a physician to continue to practice as one, um, it, you know, you know, to, to kind of answer your, your you know, question more broadly. I grew up with a physician father. Uh, we had a we had a, a family commitment to health care. And so I was. Um, sort of always on a medical track, uh, so to speak. But I also got, I think, consumed with these issues of equity and fairness and um, distributive justice. And uh, and then, you know, over time, you know, questions about quality of healthcare and, you know, how we could use the principles of management and business to drive improvements in, you know, the operational effectiveness and, effic- and efficiency of healthcare delivery systems. And so, you know, my interest has has always kind of had a dual, uh, a dualistic nature. Um, you know, I'm very you know, kind of passionate about individual patient interactions and, you know, making sure that, you know, the right things are happening for people. This is a very personal mission for me, you know, especially as my parents age and, and access the healthcare system, um, you know, more often. Um, but also thinking about the broader context in which care is delivered and ensuring that, you know, we are building the systems and operating systems that um, will ultimately lead to better outcomes for more people. You know, you know, the U.S. has huge issues around access and quality and disparities, you know, that have especially been laid bare, you know, in the midst of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, but and, and so, you know, I think I was always drawn to think both about the micro and the macro. Mm. And I think the two inform each other, quite, quite frankly, in ways that I think many people don't always appreciate. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, continuing to practice medicine uh, throughout these years, even though it sometimes is challenging, um, you know, in the midst of all of my other obligations and responsibilities, oh, is is you know hugely important and, and valuable from where I sit. 
But I, I find that very impressive, of course, that you sneak this into your very busy schedule. But that link to medicine uh, that is practiced out in the markets, um, is this something in your work that you are seeing uh, at SCAN or also uh, for, for Big Pharma or even um, government? Is this link to, to down-to-earth medicine practice out there, is that sometimes missing with our top executives that they are somewhat detached uh, from, from these type of, of happenings when making decisions? Well, it's, it's absolutely um, missing. And I can tell you um, about an early experience I had in my career. I was actually working as um, special assistant and chief of staff to David Blumenthal when he was running um, the office of the national coordinator for health information technology. And, um, you know, I was you know working in this agency that was tasked with digitizing electronic health records. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what was most fascinating was at some point I was in a room where, you know, the, the, the group of you know 120 or 130 so employees were so aligned in kind of their, their agitas about, why adoption wasn't, you know, kind of easier. And I raised my hand and I said, how many of you have actually used an electronic health record? And there were only two of us in the room who would actually use an electronic health record. An electronic health record is a great, I think, example of, you know, something that sounds really, really good, but actually creates a lot of disruption and challenge when implemented in practice. Yeah. And I think, you know, healthcare is full of ideas that sound really, really good um, when they're presented in slide decks and when they're discussed in executive boardrooms that are actually, you know, oftentimes problematic and challenging um, when they're executed on the front lines of care delivery. And so um, one of the, the things I've always you know, kind of urged my teams to do is to get as close to the patient as possible. Um, I, you know, spend time in the clinic. When I was at Caremore, one of the requirements that we imposed on, on everyone who was at the director level and above, and you know, that meant that they were in a significant management capacity, um, was to at least speak to one of our patients once a month um, so that they could actually get a feel for you know, what it meant to be part of you know, our delivery system and receive care in our world. Um, and you know, I, another management practice I introduced was um, periodic lunches with our uh -huh. patients um, just to sit with them and understand what they were experiencing, you know, what their unmet needs were. And, um, you know, going back to my Merck days, you know, something I introduced there was um, what we call the patient input forum, where we would have, you know, patients with the actual diseases who were sometimes often even using Merck products come in to talk about their experience with the disease as well as the treatment. Um, and this had, I think, you know, these types of practices, I think, have two main effects. One is um, they get you closer to the lived experience of the end user, which I think is so important. But I think the second aspect, which is equally important, is connecting people to the mission and connecting mm -hmm. people to the impact that they're having. And, you know, I think people come to healthcare to actually um, have careers that don't feel like careers in other industries. They're looking, they have a hunger for um, that sense of human connection, human impact. And, um, you know, one of the kind of key themes I've brought to, you know, every workplace that I've been over the last decade is this notion of meaningfulness, you know, mm -hmm. ensuring that, that the workplace and the work always feels meaningful and impactful. I very much like that perspective on what you introduced to the various places that you have been serving in various roles there. And 
what I take away um, clearly is not everything that sounds great and looks great um, on a PowerPoint will be great and, and accepted um, at the front line um, and especially by patients and that customer centricity uh, that everyone is talking about. Uh, you need to try from the top yeah, if you want to make a difference here. You bet. Hey, during your leave from Harvard, when you served in the Obama administration uh, for two years, you also tested new models of healthcare payment and delivery. And one of the kind of the quotes or statements about this time in your, in your life uh, reads around, there will always be opportunities to contribute to society through the private sector, but uh, this is a unique time with a unique president with a special opportunity to affect change in the area I am most passionate passionate about, which is, of course, medicine and healthcare. So when I saw this, is there any chance that at some point you're, you're picking up politics again? Well, I, you know, I, um, I think about it less as politics and more as policy and policy implementation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a bit of a wonk in that regard. And, you know, I would um, answer any call uh, from our country to serve. Um, obviously, there's, you know, kind of personal considerations and, and you know, professional obligations that sometimes um, make it, you know, difficult to actually accept that call. Um, but, you know, my orientation is around service and impact. And I think there are a few ways uh, in which you can create, you know, more impact and more service to people um, than, you know, serving in government. Yeah. I, you know, I frequently get asked by you know, physicians at various stages of training and um, for career advice, um, and, you know, actually from lots of people across healthcare. And, you know, they ask me, you know, should I do time in government? And I say, if you have even in the slightest inclination, I would recommend, you know, you go because it will forever change your perspective on the breadth and magnitude and challenge of, of solving, you know, the big you know, problems that we face in our industry. In our industry, as you put it, I mean, but also more broadly, if there has been one global topic during the last six months, uh, it surely has been COVID-19 and, and the pandemic that we all in and i mean given we're we're having this podcast now I, i would love to get your perspective as to whether you think covid-19 um is is currently under control in the US, us and and also what the what the american population does think and and how they cope with a very very special and detrimental situation that we're all in here yeah i'm very you know very sadly honestly um You know, we've now seen kind of a blend of politics and science that's taken place over the last number of years that I, I don't think um, existed before. And, you know, one of the themes I think about a lot, you know, kind of really drawing from some of the work that the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation has done um, is around this notion of trust in science and trust in politics and, um, and, and trust in, you know, kind of scientific decision making. And I think One of the things you've seen dramatically through the lens of COVID-19 is a real erosion in the American public's trust and confidence um, in, in, you know, scientific authority and scientific, um, uh, uh, you know, advice mm. around, you know, epidemic management. And I think, you know, part of that is, I think, you know, the, the direction, this has been such a fast moving target that the directions and guidance has changed so much that people often, you know, look at this information, they say, well, You know, we don't really um, trust these people because they told us one thing one week and then they told us another thing the next week. And so as a result, 
None of it is trustworthy, as opposed to applying a very different lens to it, which is recognizing how hard this is, right? And how challenging this is. And frankly, um, you know, uh, how complicated and, uh, and nuanced responding to this epidemic really, you know, was going to be. And so, um, I think there were a, lum- a number of factors leading into it. I think some of it's been, you know, our uncomfortable, uh, democratization of information, um, such that, you know, anyone, um, you know, with, with a, you know, a Google prompt on their computer thinks that they're an expert now in some, in some <laughs> domains. And so, um, I think, you know, what, what's played out now is because there's been this erosion of trust in scientific and medical, um, decision making and authority, uh, you, you know, you're seeing variable compliance with, you know, the best and recommendations we have right now around social distancing, you know, masks, hand washing. Um, and, you know, you know, I live in Los Angeles County where I think there's a, a very strong degree of compliance now because of the, the high degree of morbidity that people have observed here. Um, you know, you drive 30 miles south from my home to Orange County and you see much lower levels of compliance. Mm. And so, again, I think um, there has been and, and the politics in these two counties is very different. And so I think one of the most unfortunate and sad parts of this epidemic, I think, has been, again, the erosion of trust in science. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I think the, the convergence of politics and science. Really, I was very surprised by is, I mean, the US is is one of the richest, one of the most developed, uh, one of the uh, most science-proof and science-led countries that I would have uh, named first when being asked to do so. And I was really surprised, shocked, made very sad when I've seen the happenings in the US. And, and I was really, yeah, I couldn't believe that this is happening in the US. Yeah? Um, and uh, that 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 erosion in trust as you put it in confidence be it in science or medicine or politics i mean what you're losing there in in a matter of a couple of days or weeks um, this will take you years to to regain in 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 society's trust in in those any any prediction that you're seeing there anything that will happen or, or needs to happen in in order to rebuild and regain that trust yeah and i think one you know just to respond to your the first part of your question i mean what i'll say is One of the reasons it is as surprising as it is, you know, to folks who are observing the situation in the United States from abroad is I don't think people fully recognize the extent to which we have huge disparities here um, in income and in social mm. opportunity. Um, and those disparities exist across class, but they also exist across race. Um, and there's also disparities, frankly, in, you know, kind of um, in education and access to education. And so people's sophistication around processing information, you know, varies, you know, quite significantly. And so, um, you know, I think those are all uh, root, root factors. I think a lot of how we come out of this crisis is going to depend on the politics in this country and how they evolve over the next, mm-hmm. you know, four to five years. Um, I think the last, uh, you know, decade has demonstrated how divided we are as a country. And, you know, I think more than anything, um, you know, top leadership in, in government, policy, business world, you know, needs to do whatever they can to try to create a greater sense of, of unification of the country. And so I think if we can get that from our political leaders, I think we will have, um, you know, we, we may be able to return to a place 
where there is a, a singular narrative on and on uh, issues like COVID-19 and a singular approach. Um, but if we don't, then I think we're going to continue to see, you know, politics, you know, being a wedge between you know, scientific truth and reality for people. And so I am um, uh, I'm hoping I'm very hopeful that I think, you know, over the long term, countries are very resilient. Communities are resilient. People are resilient. I think societies go through periodic upheavals. Um, you know, we are going through one right now. It is incontrovertible that we are going through one right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm an optimist by nature, and I believe that uh, these types <laughs> so of I. <laughs> oftentimes have the opportunity to create real positive momentum and change um, coming out of them. And I think that's, that is the history of the world. Even when you think about some of the worst things that have happened over the last, you know, 100 years, on the other side of it is is a rebirth and a renaissance, so to speak. And so that's what I'm I'm most excited to see is um, how we come out of this. Yeah, and that that optimism I've also read into one of your recent tweets uh, tweets that you made around that too many in healthcare are asking for how to get back things to normal rather than asking what we can we actually use this and leverage this crisis for to get to a, a new and even better normal for patients. Yeah, well, anyone anyone who wants things to go back to normal kind of believes that what we had before was just and equitable mm -hmm. and in the best interest of our society. You know, even though we're very fast at adopting, you know, new scientific innovations, we're very slow to adopt, you know, innovations in, you know, structure and organization mm -hmm. of, of healthcare delivery. And so um, I, I think, um, you know, one of the, you know, opportunities coming out of COVID-19 is to, in, you know, I think advance the use of digital technologies and care. We've seen that over the last number of months um, where, you know, more and more people are accessing primary and specialty care virtually and digitally, you know, kind of recognizing the ridiculousness of bringing together sick people all in one place <laughs> to create, to create and transmit, you know, super bugs. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, I think, you know, we're starting to see, The transition of you know payment models from strict fee for service to you know now more you know value based you know uh, capitated or delegated you know models of payment that you know introduce more rationality into the delivery of care. And when we talk about the future of healthcare and uh, how we can leverage the crisis for for making a, a substantial step ahead uh, um, in that new, better normal, uh, I mean, surely we need to talk about uh, data uh, at scale. Uh, that, of course, needs to be relevant data, uh, cleansed data, and also interoperable data um, uh, around people's lives. And um, now, connecting back to Europe, there, there are many concerns that people over uh, here are, are seeing when in talking about commercializing data, data security, cybersecurity, and uh, anything alike, and uh, examples that we're all hearing around, uh, for instance, is Amazon Transcribe Medical and others. What is your personal, but also America's uh, take on data sharing in healthcare? Is that not only um, wishful uh, and needed, but also kind of uh, mandatory for everyone to 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 donate their data um, in in order to yeah contribute to, to better healthcare more broadly to society. I think that there's a very heightened and appropriate paranoia right now in American society around you know how data can be used 
against you. Um, oh, really? My very first academic paper was actually on the use of genetic information. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was was studying genetic information privacy laws um, because you know uh, there was actually you know a time where genetic information, including whether you had you know kind of were BRCA positive, um, you know could be used to discriminate against you in terms of issuing health insurance, and so. Um, you know, I think there is paranoia about how this information potentially gets used against you and not a lot of public clarity on how this information actually is used for you. So but but my view is, you know, whoever our next president is, you know, if they were to define some grand challenges that could be solved through the use of data, whether it's, you know, developing new cures for cancer, mm-hmm. whether or or you know, solving the scourge of obesity and diabetes in the United States. Uh, you know, if we were to define it in terms of some big public mission, I do believe that the large majority of the American public would step forward and donate their data if there was a clear use case and a clear benefit. Um, but it's going to require, you know, leadership from the top and frankly, more clarity on why we should be, you know, kind of donating our data and amalgamating our data, which I don't think has been given to people just yet. And and this is certainly um, a big task um, that you outline, which is which is great. Um, I mean, defining such use cases and, and be specific around those use cases, what's in it for the individual, and communicate that well to an individual who is not from the healthcare sector uh, necessarily is, is a challenge in itself. And uh, you having brought also change to the previous organizations that, that you have been uh, leading over the last years. I mean, you are now taking at SCAN care of uh, many uh, seniors in, in the US society. How do you want to convey those messages, especially to those elderly people when talking about digital health uh, and, and data usage and in the years to come? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, one of the most interesting things I would say about the population we serve, which is seniors, is how many stereotypes we have uh-huh. um, about their willingness to adopt or their willingness to share that, you know, when in practice, don't actually bear out. You know, amidst the COVID-19 crisis, many of us thought you know, seniors would not use digital technologies to um, uh, access care and actually I would say, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And what we saw was that when appropriately supported um, and SCAN, you know, took some very proactive steps to appropriately support seniors and, mm-hmm. you know, driving ease of use, they, they not only, um, you know, used digital technologies, but they enjoyed using it. And so uh, um, I think that the, you know, again, it's about just clarity of, of the use case. And I think it's about, you know, making it as easy as possible for people, um, you know, both on the digital front as well as the data front. And I think once you do that, I think people are are inclined to, you know, take a big step forward in that area. So, Sachin, given that you're based out of California, um, I have to ask you uh, around the Silicon Valley, uh, which is a, if not the magnet for young entrepreneurs and certainly the birthplace of some of the most valuable companies of the present and also in healthcare, um, uh, bringing forward some of the most um, interesting uh, startups uh, that, that we either see or will see in future. Um, what makes the Silicon Valley so special? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's this culture of, you know, wanting to challenge the status quo. Um, and I think, you know, there is a 
there are so many just, I think, phenomenal examples of, of companies that have come out of Silicon Valley that have literally changed the way you know, society operates that I think it tends to attract people with that high level of ambition. Um, and so, you know, I think that that kind of cultural support, both from a financing you know, perspective, but I think more importantly, from a, you know, um, you know, cultural norms perspective, you know, is so powerful in leading people to take big risks to, you know, frankly challenge, you know, the, the orthodoxy around how certain things happen. So, you know, right now, you know, you see Silicon Valley incubating, um, you know, kind of startup health plans, startup primary care models, startup specialty models, yeah. um, uh, hospital at home companies, uh, digital health tools and solutions, all with an eye towards driving, you know, real disruption. And um, even if those companies, you know, fail spectacularly, and, and many, if not most, do, um, there's all kinds of learning that I think happens across the way. And I think, you know, the talent that, you know, is drawn to these companies that rolls over to a next set of companies and then they bring with them those lessons, which then I think increase their odds of odds of success. And, you know, I think that that's a well-worn formula that translates often into, you know, kind of the creation of companies that will meaningfully disrupt care over the long haul. That said, I think, you know, health, healthcare and Silicon Valley have had a long and tortured relationship, frankly, <laughs> um, because I don't think that, you know, I think the, the sort of odd laws of physics in healthcare, um, as it relates to financing and regulation, um, don't make intuitive sense to you unless you've spent a lot of time in it. And, um, and so I think a lot of companies struggle and a lot of entrepreneurs struggle because you know, what, what is common sense in other industries actually doesn't apply in healthcare just because of our complicated system of payment and regulation. And so, um, you know, I think a, a lot of times I've seen a lot of, I've seen entre entrepreneurs, you know, frankly spin their wheels for a while because the world is not as it seems mm. <laughs> it should be or would be. Um, and so, you know, I, when I think about how much Silicon Valley has actually implemented you know, driven real change at the front lines of how care is delivered. Going back to that, you know, first thing we talked about is the gap between, you know, the boardroom and the exam room. I think, you know, it, Silicon Valley has not had a tremendous number of successes there. Um, there have been lots of initiatives that have been started up, lots of companies that have been started up. But in terms of creating that broad scale transformation that I think, you know, takes place, um, you know, in other sectors or domains of our life, it, it's not happening in healthcare. And certainly healthcare is, from a market condition, is way more complex than many other um, industries and, and sectors uh, that we could talk about. Um, is that anything uh, that, that is going to change uh, through to COVID? I mean, is there more interest, more budget shifting um, towards healthcare um, uh, acutely, but also uh, more broadly um, after the crisis? Is there anything that you would expect there to change? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of it is just, I think there's this greater belief in, in digitization mm -hmm. of care. Um, and that's been, you know, I think spurred between, spurred by, Policies, you know, led by the federal government and private payers that actually now support, uh, you know, kind of reimbursement for digitally delivered care, which frankly didn't exist uh, before. And so I think some of that has, um, you know, changed. And I, and I don't think we're going to be going back. 
Uh, you know, I think these were temporary measures enacted, but I think, you know, bet- between the private payers and, um, and public payers, you're going to see, you know, increasing, uh, you know, uh, payment parity for digital and in-person care. And, uh, you know, as a result, you're going to see more provision actually taking place. I think what it, what you're finally seeing is that the payment policies are catching up to, you know, some of the most innovative, you know, technology companies out there. And as a result, you know, what you're going to see is, is I think more disruption. The only thing I'm worried about though is, you know, does it all actually like make a difference? <laughs> um, right? Like does it actually change patient care? Um, so much of what we do, you know, in, in the so-called entrepreneurial healthcare world is what I call like overlay medicine, which is, you know, you're taking an existing care process and then you're just overlaying another care process with the kind of hope and belief and prayer that it's actually going to make a difference. <laughs> and, you know, more often than not, it actually just creates confusion for the patient and more cost for the system with real uncertain benefit. And so I think that's one of the things that we have to kind of, I think, contend with as a as an industry. And back we are at the clarity on the use case. Why? This is needed, uh, be it digital or analog, um, to be very clear around what's the use case behind uh, the measure that you're putting, the new product that you or, or service that you're putting out there uh, to the front line. Uh, you bet. You bet. And I mean, g- given your, your your rich expertise and experience that you made over the last years, if you would uh, now jump ten years ahead from now. Um, with all the COVID happenings, with all uh, the digitization underway, in 10 years from now, um, more or less, uh, what do you think uh, would have been the biggest surprises or or leapfrogs that, that we are experiencing since then? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, m- most significantly, you're going to see, I think, more consolidation of the U.S. physician market. I think people who are present, there's a There's been a lot of consolidation. You're going to see even more. Um, and, you know, I think that that consolidation will exist in the form of, you know, physician practices joining, joining forces with larger practices, mm-hmm. uh, as part of roll ups. And I think that that consolidation is going to drive closer relationships between payers and providers. And those closer relationships may even come in the form of, um, you know, kind of more value based payment arrangements. They're easier to implement. You know, when you're operating at large scale as opposed to kind of operating in these smaller practices. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, from within that, you're going to see more digital transformation of care. Uh, you'll see, you know, uh, I think you'll see an increasing move away from what I call quote unquote big box medicine. Um, you know, care delivered in big hospitals and health systems. You're going to see more and more care delivered at home. Um, you know, more use of advanced logistics to try to, to, you know, take care of as many people as you can in the home-based setting as opposed to the hospital-based setting, because I think there's an increasing recognition of the fact that hospital costs are the number one kind of line item, you know, in the U.S. healthcare system. Many of those hospitalizations are avoidable, um, both from, you know, through the lens of improved and enhanced chronic disease management, but also through the lens of, you know, delivering uh, hospital-level, level, what is today hospital-level care, um, more in the home-based setting. So I think you're going to start to see a lot of innovation uh, in these dimensions, um, you know, but I think you're also going to see resistance in markets where, you know, people are allowed to continue to do what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think what COVID-19 proved is that change in healthcare does not need to be slow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, can. The, industry, the industry actually kind of makes it that way. 
in a lot of ways. So, yeah, and you know, in in our recent podcast, we have been actually talking about uh, a German example where uh, something that took more than four years. Uh, not commenting on what it was now, but that took four years without a result until here. It only took uh, about two weeks to get implemented throughout the whole country. Yeah, so um, uh, it's it's a testament or testimony of 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 how how quick things can go if there is um, yeah pressure in the system. I guess. Yeah? Um, Absolutely. So hey, so we need to create we need to create more pressure in the system. I, mean, I think that's one of the things that's that's missing, and I you know. What people people often ask me, what I'm, you know, what are some of my reflections after two decades of kind of trying to do this work? Uh, I'll say, is that leadership is the most underrated missing ingredient in you know a lot of organizations and a lot of systems. I think you know we need more leaders, more uh, risk takers, more you know more boards that are willing to endorse and support you know, you know real radical transformation and reinvention. Um, right now, I think we're lost in a cycle of incrementalism and we're only pushed into, you know, radical reformation when, you know, there's these big external shocks to the system. I think, you know, the right leaders will actually, you know, help us execute on these things at scale. So. What an ending, Sachin, I have to admit. Really big thanks to you taking the time here. And I, I really loved the, the, the fresh, provoking, but also encouraging perspectives that you brought around uh, well, stay close to the front line. Yeah? Rotate um, between sectors, or not sectors, but but players in the sector to gain experiences um, and, and 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 different perspectives uh, from the various players. But also uh, the comments around uh, the erosion of trust and uh, how difficult it may be to regain that. But also um, the the elements that you you mentioned at the end around we need to have clear um, and and easy to understand use cases why we're doing things in healthcare in order not to lose out people and uh, we need the leaders here to to lead those radical transformations um, into the next decade um, to come so uh, those were my my biggest takeaways any any last remarks that you want to uh, leave our listeners with. Yeah, no, I just want to thank you all. Um, thank you, Thomas, uh, you know, for having me on this podcast. Um, you know, it's really been a great discussion. And, you know, just want to leave all the listeners with um, as much encouragement as they need. I think we need um, the, we needed a lot of, uh, I think, progressive, vision oriented leaders who are willing to get their hands dirty um, to change this uh, broken system and make it better. And, um, you know, want to encourage you all on your journeys. Super. Hey, thanks uh, again, Sachin, and everyone on the line here also. Thanks for listening in. Uh, as always, if there is anything uh, in terms of more information that you would need, uh, please uh, be invited to our website, download our latest thinking and studies. And uh, with that said, I'm already looking forward to uh, the next episode, which will be with one of the leaders at Google Health based out of the US and also getting their perspective on the future of healthcare. But for now, um, stay healthy, everyone, and tune in next time. Bye-bye. Strategy and strategy made real.